Baltimore Blues, Charm City, Butcher's Hill, In Big Trouble, The Sugar House, In a Strange City, The Last Place, No Good Deeds, Another Thing to Fall, By a Spider's Thread. I almost missed that one. I I feel like this is the 12th test title. Yeah, exactly. So you've got 11 previous. Yes. And then eight standalones. Yes. Right? Okay, good. Okay, that, okay, that math, I think okay. That's, I think that that's totally right. adds up, yes. So here's how, what we're going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to read, go ahead and read your, the introduction. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Harper Audio Presents, a podcast that brings you conversation and inspiration from your favorite authors, editors, and creators giving you new perspectives on the world of books, culture, and the arts. We are part of the HarperCollins Presents Network of Podcasts. And then we'll just start talking. Okay. All right, here we go. Hi, I'm Anna Maria Alessi, and joining me today is Laura Littman. Since her debut in 1997, Laura has been heralded for thoughtful, timely crime novels set in her beloved hometown of Baltimore. Now a perennial New York Times bestseller, she has written 11 books featuring Tess Monahan and eight standalone novels. She lives in Baltimore and New Orleans with her family. Welcome, Laura, and thank you so very much for joining us. Hey, thank you for having me. It's great to have Tess back. She's changed now. She's a mother, and uh, her, she's got a three-year-old daughter who's quite, quite spunky and got quite the personality, Carla Scout, and she's got a new business partner. And I think her it seems like her, her feelings for her boyfriend have changed a little bit. She sort of seems to be settling into that. But I what I like is that her her badass attitude, you know, remains. She she hasn't really softened up in, in too many uh, too many of the ways that we love her for. Well, I mean I think if anyone who's been a parent knows that it's about as hard boiled as things get. You're covered with a lot of different fluids. <laughs> all the time from somebody else and you have to get by on very little sleep. You become used to the idea that you have zero control over your life, that this other person has all the control. And I think it actually meshes really well with the, the life of a longtime PI. Now I've I've read that your work is has been described as domestic suspense. And I also read an interesting quote where you said that you want to slow the crime novel down and that by doing so, you're respecting the reader, which I really like. Tell me, tell me a little bit more about the way that you approach writing a detective novel that seems very distinct from, from other types of, of, of writers. It seems to me that there was a tendency among some writers, less and less, to try to make their crime novels more exciting, more thrilling, by upping the body count and becoming increasingly creative in almost a sadistic way. Mm. And I can see how that would be tempting. It, it does up the stakes. If, you know, we, we're writing books that we want people to read, to race through, interested in how they're resolved. And if it's a ticking clock in which a person's going to keep killing until that person is stopped, that is a pretty pressing reason to to read a novel. But it occurred to me at some point that in upping the body count, we were losing sight of the fact that every death matters. 
you know, to get poetic, um, John Donne, every man's death diminishes me. I actually went to a summer camp where we sang a song inspired by No Man is an Island. Oh, wow. And I thought that look, the other approach is valid. It's fine. But for me, I decided, well, I'd rather go deep with a small number of deaths, one or two, and not lose sight of the fact that this is irrevocable. A life has been lost. A person is gone. No investigation, no solution can ever change that. I heard something fascinating in a documentary the other day about murder in which someone said, no, there can be no justice for the victim. The victim is dead. There may be some for those of us who mourn her. And I thought that was a really good insight. Uh, We don't really achieve justice for the dead. We don't really do anything for them. What we do is for ourselves and for our sense that this is such a horrible crime. It's such a sin against community that until a murderer is discovered and punished, it's very hard for a community to go on. Mm -hmm. And so that was for me. I said, I I think I can slow this down. I, I certainly became much more conscious of violence in my books. I'm actually a very squeamish person. Yeah. And I'm very prone to nightmares. And there are certain shows and books that I like, and then the nightmares start, and I have to give them up. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you. I've also read that you've cautioned above um, placing the investigator above the crime victim, which you've, you've said might be a tendency that, that, that needs to stop. Well, it's tricky. And when I write a Tess Monahan book, how is the book not about Tess? These books have always been about where Tess is, what's going on in her life, how is she developing, what milestones has she reached. She started the series as a young, unemployed woman in a rental apartment that was above her aunt's bookstore, uh, dependent upon family for basically every dime that was coming in. And since then, she has built up her own business. She's bought a house. She's had a child. She's entered a committed relationship. She has gone through a passage that is typical for many young women from their 20s into their 30s. That said, I never, I try not to lose sight of who has been lost, who has suffered. And in Hush Hush, which ends with a chapter that's very happy for Tess, there is still a conversation about the people who have survived the very real tragedies in the book. Mm-hmm. And Tess is reminded in the midst of her celebration that there are others who have been harmed and will not be able to celebrate right. wholeheartedly yes. or very soon. Right. Yeah, I, I think that's certainly why I find your books appealing because there's always that that level of humanity. Some other types of novels like that or even these documentaries I, it feels so voyeuristic, and I don't want to spend time with with some of these people. That that I just feel like we shouldn't we shouldn't be giving them, you know, sort of that notoriety is, is kind of my feeling. So I I yeah. tune it out. I agree. Now you you've obviously you've worked as a, a newspaper reporter, and you covered politics and crime and social justice and sports. Now did you did you cover sports as a straight <clears throat> ahead, or was it some of those sort of personal interest stuff? Or there, the just only reason I can include sports on my resume is I started my career in Texas, where 
as the world now knows, Friday night football is a really big deal. (laughs) And And were you covering that? I would come in for overtime, and I would take phone calls and write these little briefs about football games in these tiny counties all over Texas. And I remember being so proud when I moved up to the point where I was allowed to do a game with stats. Not just the score, but I could do stats. And I also remember that sometimes the coach or whoever was supposed to call it in would just forget. And the instructions from my supervisor would be, call the Dairy Queen. Call the Dairy Queen and ask them the score. Because everybody would know. And because everybody would know. So that's how I managed to do sports. Um, That was about it. That was about it for my career as a sports writer. Okay, I was curious about that. Now, I know that you wrote your first seven novels while working full-time as a reporter. And you've said that working as a reporter has made you pay more attention to your endings. Are you one of these authors that starts with the ending when they when they work on an, an idea for a novel? I mean, I have a visual image of the ending. There's a big secret, and I know what it is. I don't know how the characters are going to find their way to it, and there are other secrets and developments that I can't really guess. And often I can see a character at the end of the book. I don't necessarily know where they are or what they're doing, but I have a sense of them. When I wrote the first Tess Monaghan book, Baltimore Blues, I had this really clear vision of her watching um, a race on the middle branch of the Patapsco, watching... Um, a regatta involving the crew, and I could see the play of light and everything. It's seldom in that specific sense, but I I do have a sense of where I'm going. It's sort of like a a journey where as things come closer, they may seem very different, Mm. but I have a general sense of where I'm headed. And does that differ when you're approaching one of your test novels as opposed to one of your standalones? What, what are the differences in the way that you approach and write those two? That's pretty consistent. Okay. The endings are pretty consistent. I would say that the big difference between the test novels and the standalones is that the test novels tend to be linear. There's one time frame. Okay. We start with tests, we go straight through. Maybe there's chapters told from someone else's point of view, but we're still linear. Time is in the present moving forward. And the standalones have tended, have tended as if they do this passively and I'm just standing by. (laughs) Now, um, I really love to play with time. And I like to move around in time. And I find it immensely fun and satisfying to jump around and to bend time to my will. Uh, Right now I'm working on a book slightly different from anything I've done. It's a standalone. And the two time frames are told by the same person or seen through the same person's eyes. But the chapters in the past are first person, written in past tense, completely informed by hindsight. A story being told by someone who knows everything. And the chapters in the present day are that same character, but now she's third person and everything's in the present tense because she knows nothing. Oh, that's so cool. And everything is waiting for her. It took me a long time to find that framework, but once I did, it really clicked in. Oh, that sounds really fun. I hope so. That sounds fun. 
You know, another thing that you've talked about is you, you've mentioned Mary McCarthy's essay, Fact as Fiction, as the an fact influence. Fact Fiction. Mm-hmm. Tell, tell us about that essay and, and what it means to you. It was an essay I found really early on. Um, it's in a book called On the Contrary, and I must have bought it at a used bookstore, and I think I might have bought it at a used bookstore in my very early 20s, and I've carried it with me everywhere since, you know, from move to move to move. The fact in fiction was the first thing that I encountered that championed getting things right in fiction. Mm. That the best fiction often is instructive. You know, I, McCarthy's example was that when you read Moby Dick, you will learn a lot about whaling in the Got 19th it. century, which some people complain about. Yeah. But I've always felt that the fiction I like gets the details right. Yeah. Um, I, I will say for the, the book I'm working on, part of it involves a trial, and a, a murder trial. And, you know, for the purposes of fiction, whether it's in novel form or film, the timeline of a trial is often condensed. Oh, so much Things so. have to happen yeah. so much faster. But because I'm playing with time and because I have the advantage of jumping around... I figured, okay, I can get this right. And what I did was I took my good friend, HarperCollins author, terrific writer, Alifair Burke, oh, former course, yeah. prosecutor, took her to lunch, and I said, oh, said, here's my crime. Help me out. Tell me how this would be paced. Tell me what would be done. What don't I know yeah. about? I mean, I know from being a reporter and being just a person in the world that often more than a year will go by between an arrest and a murder trial. And I want to, I want to get those quotidian de- details right, mm-hmm. especially about people's work. I think mm-hmm. other people's work is fascinating, yeah, yeah. and I think we should honor it. Yeah, I've, I've read that about you, that, that that's, those are the details that you really like, you know, the details around work. I think that's, I think that's important, too. All right, now, but it's, as, and in Hush Hush, there's been everything I've read about the book. I mean, obviously, I read the book, but everybody mm-hmm. seems to make note of the fact that you know you've written this book after becoming a mother, and that Tess has now become a mother in it. But I've also read that you say you don't, you don't, you don't feel sentimental about childhood because children are people as well, and that a lot of what you try to do in your writing is sort of write about the fact that no one is ever safe, and that fiction maybe allows people to drop their guard and sort of sort of experiencing that but knowing that no one is ever safe how how does that affect you as a parent and then again sort of how do you spin that but I know there were a lot of comments oh you'll never find the time (laughs) I'm not as I'm not as interested in that as much as because I think that that's working women find they find ways to do whatever the heck they want and I believe that's 100 percent so it's not so much that but rather how did this new experience inform what you were doing and sort of stretch it or change it? There are definitely writers who feel as if it's kind of bad karma to imagine bad things happening to children once they have a child. I don't quite feel that way. I'm someone who tries not to sit around thinking about the worst-case scenario because you could quickly become paralyzed with fear if you think about 
everything bad that can happen to a kid in a given day. I have pretty much made peace with the fact that I don't control a lot of things in the universe. Mm. And control is such an illusion. The illusion of control is part of the reason that human beings are extremely irrational and make incredibly bad choices all the time. You know, one of the famous examples is that a lot of people are scared to fly, but they're not scared to drive. Yeah. Well, the statistics course, tell yeah. the story. Mm-hmm. And since I've become a parent, my focus has been less on trying to make the world 100% safe because that's a losing battle. And it's been more on really letting my kid be who she wants to be. Mm -hmm. Trying not to be too top-down. Trying not to create a little carbon copy of myself. But there's there's a saying in therapy... You get to be the expert on you, you know. And I, I trying to raise a kid who gets to be yeah, her own the expert. expert on herself. And I really listen to her, and I'm fascinated by her ideas. I had, I, I truly, I had only one, one resolution or okay. what you might, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, yeah, when, yeah. when I knew I was going to have yeah, a child, okay, and I knew I was going to be a daughter. I said, okay, the only. Pledge I'm going to make is is I'm going to raise a kid who's not disordered about food. You have one of my favorite quotes about the challenge of being a good parent that I'm going to steal from you. And I I, I wonder if you can remember the day that you said this to your husband. I wonder if you even remember saying this. But I, you said being a good parent is like trying to pitch a perfect game into eternity. <laughs> I don't remember when I said that. I love that. As a baseball fan, as as a mother, that's exactly what it feels like. And I think, yeah, it's impossible. I I often talk to writers about the effort of writing the book and then the very different experience in publishing. So was there anything about, let's say, this 20th time, this experience, that's that has surprised you? Has anything surprised me about the 20th time? Um... You know what? I was genuinely surprised and gratified that people were so happy to see Tess come back. Oh, isn't that nice? You know, you you get some feedback, and, you know, it's hard to know, though. And it was especially hard to know because she'd been away for so long. Yes. And she came back, and people were really happy. And that was lovely. And I, I, think, I think the thing, though, that surprises me every year is that it doesn't get easier to write a book. The only thing that you gain over a long career is the knowledge that you have survived X number of books. And you say, well, I did it 20 times. I should be able to do it 21 times. And then it's like, I should be able to do it a 22nd time. Uh, I think... And that's really it. Every time it's just as hard... And it's just as terrifying and... It's got to be like running a marathon, right? Yeah. It's not easier to run yeah, 20, your 22nd yeah, yeah. marathon. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you might have trained harder. Right. You have your ups and downs. You have different conditions that will change the experience. But it's never going to be easy to run 
two miles. No one's ever going to say, oh, that was just a breeze today. Right, right. And yet all the races you've run before will inform you. And when you're flagging at mile 20, you can say to yourself, this is where you flag. This is where the energy starts to run out. You know that. Push through. And so that's really the only thing I've learned is that I've survived it before, so I should be able to survive it again. Yeah. All right, now I want to ask you a few questions as writer, as reader. I ask everybody okay. a few questions. What was the last book that you had a conversation about, and, and what did you say? Well, I was just talking this morning, and I haven't finished it yet, but I'm reading Funny Lady by Nick Hornby. Oh. I'm a big Nick Hornby fan, and I think he writes particularly well about women. Mm-hmm. And especially after Juliet Naked, a novel I was crazy about, and now Funny Lady, the idea of taking on this story of a woman who happens to be gorgeous but wants to be funny. Yeah. I'm just knocked out by the empathy that he shows his character and by the... He's just really good at people. Yeah, he is. He's these little tiny... Like, the tiniest character just to be this... This moment of humanity. So I, I talked about, um, yeah, I talked about Funny Lady just this just this morning. Yeah. Now, if if you knew you were to be banished to a desert island and you were limited to three books, oh, I get three. You get three books. Well, that's exciting. I was just asked that question, but I was only given one. Mm. And I feel like a lot of people try to come up with some really clever loophole. And I have to admit that if I'm only taking one, I wouldn't take a book I hadn't read. Because I've had these bad experiences where I've taken trips with this book or that book that I think is going to finally get read and it's been awful or I find out I don't like it and now I'm stuck. So one book I know I would take because I feel like I could reread it forever and that it holds up to endless deconstruction. I can think about it forever. I've probably read it 10 times and I'm always finding new things in it is Lolita. Uh-huh. By Nabokov, which is one of my favorite novels. And then I think I would want to take some kind of heavy-duty philosophy books. Mm-hmm. One. I'd have to pick one. And then finally, I would like to take a book that was sort of famously unfinished and maybe think about whether oh. I can do it better. Oh. I, think, I think I'd like to take The Last Tycoon oh and think about gosh. that a lot and think about, well, because I'm going to be on a desert yeah, island. you got to keep yourself busy. And so I kind of, you know, look into that and think, okay, where where are the seams and where did where did things not get yeah, done? Yeah, where they get dropped off. And what, yeah. what could be changed or maybe nothing should be changed, but... Yeah, I'd really want to take books that I, I could think a lot about and that would sort of keep circling back with more ideas, like what what do you think about it today and where it could change all, right, all the time. Second, that's, a, that's a brilliant one. All right, now finally, let's fast forward. Your daughter is now 13, and you're going to press a book in her hand. What's it going to be? It might be Lolita. Wow, how interesting. It might be, because I read it when I was 12. Probably yeah. not, probably not, but... I think 
she'll be too old then for most of the children classics that I love so much. Yeah, you've mentioned the uh, the Betsy Tacy books by yeah, far. Yeah, yeah. I, I, we're we're already reading Betsy Tacy at night Great. as a chapter book, which is fantastic. So I'm thinking it's probably a book I've read in my twenties, and something. Oh, I will give my daughter a book called All My Friends Are Going to Be Strangers by Larry McMurtry. Oh. A book I read when I was 23. And I remember I was sitting on a Greyhound bus in Texas because my car was in the shop. I was taking the bus from Waco to San Antonio to visit my then boyfriend. And I just happened to have this book. And I opened it up. And it begins so simply, yet so briskly and with such confidence that I remember kind of sighing with happiness and thinking, one day I want to write something that makes someone feel the way I feel right now. Thank you for listening. I'm Anna Maria Alessi, and this episode was edited by Sharon Matlin with production help from Jennifer Monroe. The books featured in this episode are available for purchase wherever books are sold. Please be sure to subscribe to Harper Audio Presents and you can send us a question or comment via our Facebook page. We hope you'll join us next time as we hear more from leading figures across books, culture, and the arts, all brought to you by Harper Audio Presents.